Hello? Hi there. Hang on one second. There's usually an intro music that's for some reason not playing. I'm trying to figure out why. Bear with me one minute, Jack. Hello? Hi. Well, this is very, very strange. I'm not sure why the intro is not playing, and hopefully it doesn't start after we start talking. So welcome, everyone, to another... You can't hear me? Hold on. Welcome to Masters, airing weekly on Tuesdays at 12 Eastern and on demand on iTunes and Blog Talk Radio. Leverage Masters hosts Jack Humphrey and Gina Gaudio-Graves discuss leverage strategy with guest leveragists. Be sure to subscribe to Leverage Masters in your favorite podcatcher for great tips and case studies on using leverage to achieve your biggest goals much faster. So welcome everyone to another episode of Leverage Masters. I'm your co-host, Gina Gaudio-Grace. And along with Andrea Adams-Miller, we are the co-hosts of Leverage Masters. We have a fantastic show lined up for everybody. How are you today, Andrea? I am absolutely lovely and super excited about today's show. It'll be so much fun. I just love that. I'm looking forward to it as well. (laughs) Why don't you tell everybody about our guests? I will. And you know what? I just want to thank you. You know, we have one of the, I guess, most fortunate worlds that, you know, you and I have this pleasure of meeting the most fabulous people doing really cool things in the world every week. And I just get super, super excited about it. I know. It's super fun. I just love it. So, um, so my screens just all went blank on my thing. So luckily I know who we're having on. So I will go off the cuff here. So we have uh, Jacques Marcel with us. Jacques Marcel has had 24 years of experience in the inventor's world as far as like patents and getting provisions for patents and really understanding the life of an inventor. He has um, gone to over 50 invention trade shows where, you know, they really focus on everything from um, how to how to even take your idea from creation to beyond that, how to make sure that you're copyrighted and protected with your idea so that you can make things happen in the world, and then how to, you know, give you some ideas and tips and information on how to market that idea and uh, how to manufacture it once it's done. So it's just a plethora of information. And uh, prior to that, he was a commodities trader uh, advisor on, on Wall Street. So Jacques has this extensive, extensive knowledge. I mean, I would call him a guru and expert. He's very humble. He would say, no, I'm just proficient. But whatever the case, I absolutely adore this man. Uh, Jacques, uh, can you hear us? Welcome to the show. Yes, thank you very much for having me on. Oh, it's so glad hey, to have you. And this is Gina. Um, I don't know how much you know about me, if anything at all, but I started out as an attorney back in the early 90s. Back in 1990, when I was lead note editor on Notre Dame Law Review, I wrote an article about whether computer software should be the subject of a copyright or a patent. And my article has since been cited by the U.S. Supreme Court in more than seven different cases. So, boy, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Me too, as a matter of fact. 
so how did you get interested in the world that you're playing in with inventors? Well, I started off as an inventor. I came up with uh, an invention idea many, many years ago, and uh, basically a very simple idea because I was a very big and salam sports fan, baseball, and more specifically the New York Yankees. And for those that are familiar or not with the New York Yankees, one of their designs are stripes, pinstripes on their uniform. And that has carried on since 1917 or something. So what I came up with as a big Yankee fan was I wanted to invent what was called and what is called the pinstripe bat, baseball bat. So I designed a bat that had the Yankee blue and white pinstripes on it. Contacted a company that manufactures. Yeah, I contacted a company that manufactures uh, bats, Cooperstown Bat Company, as a matter of fact, and they manufactured the bat for me. We put the New York Yankees logo on it, Major League Baseball. They had the rights to it, the licensing rights. And at that time, the Yankees were celebrating uh, 26, or I don't remember, 27 World Series championships. So we put that on there. So I invented the bat. I obtained a design patent on the bat, and the rest is history. And that just got me intrigued on the, uh, into the inventor's world. Fantastic story. It's a lot of fun. I mean, inventors themselves are creative, they're unique, they're upbeat, they're aggressive, they're go-getters, and it's something that really makes it exciting to be able to speak to them and help them because they've got their ideas, and most of them, they just don't know what to do or where to go. And that's where my company, Inventor Education Academy, comes in so we can help them get started and then point them in the right direction with the least amount of money and the most productive way to move forward. That's awesome. So what kind of inventions are we talking about? Well, the gamut, really. Inventors and our clients run the gamut from uh, toys and games to some high-tech Uh, product ideas. I have one client that has an idea for uh, getting, uh, for example, deer. He lives in an open field and he has a problem with deer and he gets the deer off of his his property. I have another client that has come up with the design for shirts and putting various design patents, I'm sorry, uh, pockets on shirts in in various uh, locations, very productive. I've got another client, for example, that came up with a game board that is, you know, very unique and interesting. And we have other clients that are very high-tech and very simple ideas. But it makes no difference. Whether you have a high-tech idea like you were talking about a few moments ago, uh, computer technology, or something just very basic like my uh, pinstripe bat idea, we help you. Because the inventor, again, has to follow a certain protocol. And in order for them to make the least amount of mistakes and obtain the best results following the right steps and not going in the wrong direction and or not listening to, I hate to say those invention promotion companies because they they don't really do much help, but I don't want to pick on them. But, But the point is most inventors that we come in contact with think the very first thing they have to get is a patent. 
And actually, guys, that's not correct. And if you no, like, I can explain not. why. I was going to ask you to do exactly that. I know why, but I'm sure most of our listeners would have no idea what the heck we're talking about, Chuck. So go ahead. Okay, okay. So if you if you have an idea, you're just getting started, uh, whether you showed it to a few people, friends, family, whomever, everybody, not 90%, maybe 99 are telling you, that's a great idea. Go get a patent. Protect yourself so nobody steals it. On the surface, that sounds correct. But the reality is, here's why it's not. Because if you've just started with your invention idea, think of it this way. It's not finalized. It's not perfected exactly yet the way you want it and need it to be. You're going to have changes. You're going to have modifications. You're going to have additions. You're going to have deletions. Things are going to be completely different than what the final result is. So if you right out the gate, out of the gate, go and get your patent on a project that's not yet finished and it's not perfect, the patent that you initially obtained is not going to be protecting your final product idea. And it's, it could be virtually useless and you've spent thousands of dollars on something that really isn't in your best interest. Does that make sense? Sure does. So what should they do instead when they first come up with the idea? That's a great question, and there's a very simple answer to it. And again, most inventors don't know this because either they don't do enough research or they aren't told about it or whatever. The first step, is to obtain what's called a provisional application for patent, which is uniquely different than a full patent like a utility or design. A provisional application for patent is much less costly to apply for at the patent office, number one. Number two, it's very easy. An inventor can do it themselves right online by following the instructions at the United States Patent and Trademark Office website. Pay a very small filing fee, and right now, if you're what's called a small entity, that fee is only $140. You complete the documentation or have somebody complete it for you. We do that for our clients. Submit it with your filing fee right online, and the moment it's accepted at the patent office or received, actually, it's accepted, and that moment you become patent pending. Now, The patent pending status is telling the world, hey, this is my idea. I have a patent pending. You can't do anything with it. You can't touch it. It gives you 12 full months of patent pending status to now work on your invention idea. Now you want to modify it. Now you want to make it exactly the way you want within that 12-month period of time. You also want to look for manufacturers or distributors or licensees that are going to want your idea. So that 12-month window with the provisional application for patent is the way you start, and it's the way to move forward with your idea in whatever capacity you need to do. Very helpful. And now, what if at the end of the 12 months, you still aren't quite complete with your patent, or with your product, rather? What do you do at that point? Do you have to file for another provisional? Good question once again. There are actually three choices. One is, as you just mentioned, 
yes, you can file for another provisional. You just have to modify the next provisional slightly different from the one that you initially filed. That's one choice. Another choice is if your idea is finished, you have to or can upgrade it to a full utility patent. And the full utility patent then uses the initial filing date of the provisional as your date of filing. And your third option, which is you know possible for some people, is to abandon it. Maybe, maybe your idea isn't worthwhile. Maybe it's not worth it. Maybe it's something that just you know doesn't have the value and, and, the, and the financial wherewithal to make you money. You abandon it, and it's over. So with those three choices, the inventor then can decide what is there in their best interest. More often than not, um, I'd say it's 50-50, maybe 60-40, where an inventor goes to file another provisional, unless they really did a lot of good work and got the final product the way they want it and then file for the utility, which is the other option. But either way, it's one of those three options. And you just said something that I want to make sure that our audience really heard. It was when you were talking about option number two. If you choose option number two and actually upgrade to your utility patent application, so now you're doing your complete patent filing, the date of that patent application reverts back to the date you filed the original provisional application. And that is huge for inventors. That is correct, 100% right, because that established the early filing date of your utility patent. As long Andrew, as this is- you let – me, let me just clarify one thing. As long as you file for that utility on or before the anniversary date of that initial yes, yes, provisional yes. application. That's it. And, you know – I don't know if anybody understands why that's so important to an inventor. Why is that date so important, Chuck? Okay. Um, This country, the Patent Office, works today on what's called the first to file. That means the first person that files their patent is the one that's going to be entitled to potentially obtain the final patent from the Patent Office. Years and years ago, this country on the patent office was actually the first, not to file, but the first to invent, which means somebody had to prove that they invented their idea before they uh, filed it. And uh, I'd, I'd like to take a, uh, tell a quick story on that, if I may, okay? Absolutely. Okay. We all know who Alexander Graham Bell is, right? Yeah, but how many people know and have heard the name Elijah Gray? Probably very many. I highly doubt very many. Yep, (laughs) not very many at all. And here's the story. Back then, when Alexander Graham Bell had his patent idea, he was not the first one to invent it. Elijah Gray was. And also back then, at the patent office, you had to bring your actual physical invention to the patent office and prove to the patent examiners that it worked. If it didn't work the way you described, 
the patent examiner would reject your idea. Well, Alexander Graham Bell's first telephone invention, when he brought it to the patent office right before Elijah Gray, did not work. Then, about, oh, I think I, I remember it to be 20 minutes or a half an hour, maybe longer later, actually, Elijah Gray then went to the patent office, unbeknownst that Bell was there, brought his telephone, which did work. But the problem was for Elijah Gray was that Alexander Graham Bell was a businessman. And what he did was he spoke with the patent agent at the time, and he convinced the patent agent, either with a little greasing of the palm or something else from how the story goes, to push his patent through, and that's exactly what happened. So even though it was the first to invent, Alexander Graham Bell wasn't the first to invent it because Elijah Gray Gray was working on it well before Alexander Graham Bell, and Bell took a lot of Elijah Gray's information and made his own, which again didn't work, and that's the story. Wow. Andrew, isn't that a fabulous story? Well, yep. yeah, and it's kind of sad, too, because it means like one of the people that we look up to the most might have done something a little sneaky-sneaky. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, um, he was a businessman. Yeah. Right, right. But, it, but it's fascinating to know and fascinating to hear that. And I, there are so many other fascinating stories, whether it's about um, Thomas Edison or uh, Tesla or any other well-known inventor that we know, Tesla and Edison, you know, they had battles. One was for AC and one was for DC current. Uh, maybe you, you know about that story, but no, Alex, I'm sorry. Uh, Edison was an advocate of direct current for his electricity, and Tesla was a direct advocate for AC current, alternating current. And they were battling, and finally Tesla won because his was more productive, and that's why we have alternating current mostly in in our homes and businesses today because of uh, Tesla. Well, and I happen to live in Fort Myers, Florida, where Edison actually has an estate, and a lot of his inventions were done less than a mile from my house. He lived on the Caloosahatchee River. I live on the Caloosahatchee River. I can see his estate from my condo. So did you say certainly somebody that... Did you say it's a museum now, too? There is a museum there as well. Edison Ah. and Ford had estates right next to one another. And oftentimes, Ford would work with Edison in his lab, which is right Right. on this Caloosahatchee River in downtown Fort Myers. And so both homes, as well as the lab, which is across the street, are all part of the Edison Ford Estates Museum today. And you can actually ah, tour the lab, see the things that aren't even finished yet that Edison had worked on eons ago. It's fascinating to go and see. I I love that place. I could spend days there just looking at all the stuff that Edison worked on. I, I could imagine. I would love to go and visit that one day for sure. I've never been... Oh, well, if you ever get down here, make sure you let me know. Yes, well, I I will uh, do my best and and do that. And you mentioned Henry Ford as well. He and Edison 
as I'm sure you know, because you brought it up, are best of friends or were best of friends. So yes, they did I do know that. Together, right? Yeah. And some people, well, and if I can tell it, I've seen some things is because I live in Ohio, where the Henry Ford, you know, well, well, uh, Henry Ford stuff is lo- located close to me, and that's the whole idea of people, you know, people who go and look at any of these museums and look where stuff is and see how it works. Uh, they they learn so much by thinking about people's ideas before us. And Jacques, I cut you off. Please finish. No, that's okay. I was just going to uh, tell another quick story about uh, Henry Ford, if I may. Mm-hmm. Go Henry for it. Ford, obviously, obviously Henry Ford, a pioneer in the automotive industry, and what started him off the road to success with his Model T was his assembly line. But interestingly enough, many people don't know, Henry Ford didn't uh, invent the assembly line. Oldsmobile did. But Oldsmobile's assembly line was the vehicles were stationary and the workers moved. Henry Ford took the concept and turned it into the vehicles move and the workers stay stationary. And that increased production and gave him the opportunity to um, uh, manufacture his Model T's at a great price for the public to buy. Mm-hmm. So, and Andrea Edison actually had his primary residence in Ohio. His secondary residence was down here in Florida. And in Ohio, up like near Maumee, Ohio, you can still go and tour the Edison estates up there where there's his house and a um, his primary lab is up there, but he invented down here both the light bulb and uh, rubber for Henry Ford's tires that he needed for his cars. Those two came out That's of Florida. Right. Many of his other inventions came out of Ohio. And then yeah. Oak Park, New Jersey. Yes, absolutely. I've been to all three locations. Yeah, I have been to the yeah. one here in Ohio, and I'm glad you said where it was because when I mentioned Henry Ford, I'm like, wait a minute, where, where is that other museum I've been to that has Edison stuff in? I couldn't remember where it was. But, yeah, I, I it's think It's just outside of Mommy. Yeah, it's, so it's really, really close to me. It's like 45 minutes away. And um, it's very exciting. It's actually a very quaint, cute little house, and it's just really fun to look at all the stuff. I mean, to me, I've always – uh, always taking great uh, pleasure in going to museums and watching uh, PBS and documentaries on inventors and inventions. And, and honestly, that's who I love to work for. Um, my best favorite clients are the ones who are dreamers, or, who are dreamers and visionaries, because um, I get the pleasure of doing and implementing the things to make their dreams come true. Um, it's it's just super exciting. And then, of course, Jacques, that's what you're doing is you're that piece that helps people get that set up. Will, will you talk right. a little bit more about the structure of how you how you go through um, with even knowing whether a person's worth talking to or not? Absolutely. Um, the very first thing that we advise our clients to do is take what we call our free inventor evaluation analysis. And what that is, it's 137 multiple choice questions. It covers 11 categories, all of the invention industry, and it gives the inventor several things. The the evaluation 
doesn't evaluate the invention. It evaluates the inventor. How much do they know? What do they don't know? What is it they have to improve upon? How do they have to become a better inventor, a smarter inventor, and keep their costs down? When they complete the evaluation, we get the results. Our team then evaluates their answers, and we then send back to them a very extensive written report that uh, details what their uh, positives or negatives are, what their strengths and weaknesses are. And then one of our advisors will get on the phone to talk with that inventor and then discuss with them those uh, strengths and weaknesses and then how to improve upon them. So that's the very first step. After the evaluation, the next step is if the inventor is desirous of moving forward, and again, we don't know their invention idea yet because we haven't discussed it, we don't discuss it with them until they sign non-disclosures. So the next conversation after the evaluation is to find out do they want to move forward, and if so, we will send them our documentation, which in a non-disclosure form protects them, saying we can't do anything with your invention idea without their written permission, etc., and they disclose their idea. Once we look at the invention concept, protecting them at that time, we then give them a call back and discuss some of the details with them about it. Find out and, and give them an insight. Should they change it, modify it, or should they give up on it? If they choose to move forward and it makes sense, their next step is what we call a preliminary uh, um, patent evaluation and a preliminary patent search. So we will take that information from their non-disclosure and their conversation, and we'll do a preliminary patent search to make sure that they're not going to be infringing on, on somebody else's invention idea, and it's something that they have the potential to move forward with. In addition, we do a preliminary provisional application for patent. We evaluate, can they even obtain a provisional application for patent? So that's our second step, and they can do that with a patent attorney or a patent agent, and it's worthwhile. That usually can run between 500 to $800 or more through a patent attorney or agent. We want to keep our clients' costs down, so our fee is only $297. Once that's complete, and if the evaluation of the provisional application comes back positive, and the uh, provisional patent search comes back positive, we have that conversation with the, with the inventor, and we advise them accordingly. And then they would decide if they want to move forward, and that next step would be obtaining a provisional application for patent. So those are the first three steps uh, to get the inventor moving forward. Well, that's certainly helpful. And then... Um the free analysis, they can sign up for that through the um, – um, uh, repeat the website for me. Yeah, so to take the free inventor evaluation analysis, they would go to www.inventoreducation.net. Inventoreducation.net. And then that's where they go. And so when they uh, fill out the information to get the free analysis – uh, that's when you send them a thing for a, a signature, and so that way they can know they can do the analysis and know that they're safe and protected, correct? No, no. Actually, if they're doing the inventor evaluation analysis, 
We don't require any signed documents. We don't require their disclosure documents uh, to know about their idea. They, they sign up by giving us their name, their email, and their phone number online, and then click send. It immediately takes them to the page online to do the inventor evaluation analysis right there. They can do it on, the, on their computer, on their laptop, or even on their cell phone. So it's a very oh, simple awesome. process. So right. it really just takes them through the basic steps of what they have or what they need or what they need to have together in order to move forward. Correct. And, and seeing how Perfect. far advanced they are and seeing what kind of mistakes they made already. Oh, that's so good to know. That's so good to know. And, and then, Yeah, it is. And then with you having, you know, been through, been through this so many times uh, with so many different people and different, uh, obviously it was funny at the beginning there hearing how many different industries that you've had the opportunity to look through and see through. What are some of the things that really surprised you about some of the inventors that maybe you didn't anticipate? Um, well, one thing early on that surprised me was how much inventors – really, really, really believed that they have the next million-dollar idea but had no idea of what was involved to do it. They thought, oh, I'm going to draw my uh, invention idea on a piece of paper or my napkin. I'm going to go to a manufacturer, show them, and that uh, company is going to say, wow, that's a great idea. Let's do it. And so early on in my career working with inventors, Many, many people felt that way, and I had to guide them accordingly that that's not correct. So that's one thing. Another was, as I mentioned earlier, that everybody thought, inventors thought, first thing, got to get a patent. So we had to work through that as well and educate them accordingly. Today, um, most inventors, unfortunately, are falling for, uh, I hate to use the term again, but those invention promotion companies, they're Lots of them out there. Most of them, at least 90%, are not in the best interest of the inventor. And they're only in, interested in taking money from the inventors themselves and not giving them, uh, them very much in return. There are some very good companies out there as well. So the inventor has to do their research. They have to find out who is the right company that they should work with, who are they going to be comfortable with, and not pay an exorbitant amount of dollars in advance because those companies have commissioned salespeople. They know how to hit the hot buttons. They know what to say. They know what to do to get the inventors all excited. And unfortunately, too many people fall into that trap. So today, that's one of the bigger problems. It was in the past as well, but it's more prevalent today. Well, it's certainly interesting. And then, um, uh, along along those lines, you know, so when people are, you know, coming to you and going through that, you know, so let's say they're they're going through the process of the education and they've you've been helping them and guiding them through that different process of getting the provision and now they're working on it. Is there other avenues that you do for them, like uh, talk to them about like marketing and so forth, or is that something that you refer out? And and what are the legalities behind that? Okay, we are a company that. As the company name is, Inventor Education Academy, we don't help inventors to market their product ideas. What we do, though, is we educate inventors on how they need to market their product idea. We have a full course on the 11 subjects that they took on the evaluation analysis. 
we have each of those 11 uh, subjects, topics, on an educational course that if an inventor wants, they can sign up for our educational course and learn everything they need to know and what not to do so they can move forward. So we don't help them market it, but we help them to understand what they need to do. One of the things we will do, though, is licensing negotiation. So if an inventor comes across a company that is seriously interested in their invention idea, we would step in with our licensing agents, uh, with our expertise, and actually negotiate on behalf of the inventor. There is, uh, there's no fee. Inventors don't pay us to do that. Our, our fee in return is earning a very small percentage if we're successful of licensing and negotiating a licensing agreement. We earn a small percentage of their uh, royalties that they're going to receive. And um, another aspect of what we do is uh, in June, June 3rd through the 6th, 4th through the 6th, I'm going to Las Vegas to the largest licensing trade show in the world in the, at the Mandalay Bay. And I go there to speak to companies to get their information gather up all those different companies and all those different categories, and then we do provide that information back to our clients. Now they have the knowledge of how to go back to those companies and get them interested in their idea because we've educated them, so we do provide them with that information. That sounds super exciting. Um, I, I, I actually, uh, when I heard that you were going to that show, I was actually interested in attending it as well. I love trade shows, and I, like I said, I love being around people who are very, very creative. Uh, one of my business partners speaks at a science conference every year with a whole bunch of people who invent different things, and I love seeing and hearing the reports of all the different things these people have created uh, from all kinds of things from like uh, tents that are like a shake-up pop-up tent that looks like you would create, you know, for your kid to put in your living room, but it's actually a scientific one that could be used as a research lab that could um, have solar panels and all kinds of really cool stuff so that it can be uh, warm, have electricity, you know, <laughs> just amazing stuff that people are coming up with. And then uh, you mentioned Tesla you know, with the idea of all the artificial intelligence stuff that's being invented in the world and the software and the different things. And, and, that, and that's something, too, is so when, when people do um, think of ideas, um, often uh, what I've heard, and, and that's a limited um, hearing, um, is that they will think of an idea and then they do research and find out it's actually already been thought of. How does that work if you've thought of something, but you have an improvement on something that's already been made? How does that work? Okay. Okay. Well, the patent office has a requirement because actually today, other than the high tech or the artificial intelligence or the computer technology, other than those areas and a few others, the patent office says that, yes, you can invent something as long as it is uniquely different than what already exists. And the patent office requires a minimum of three unique differences at a minimum. Now, unique doesn't mean, for example, changing something from square to round or from red to blue or from 12 inches to 6 inches. That's not unique enough. It's got to be unique that it was not obvious beforehand on what already exists. And the majority of those types of patents that are patented today, other than the high tech that I mentioned before, the majority of patents today 
are those kinds of inventions. So, yes, an inventor can modify an existing concept, make it unique, at least with a minimum of three, hopefully more. The patent office will examine it. If the patent attorney did a good job, they should have their patent uh, approved and filed. Well, it sounds very exciting. Um, you know, I know as <laughs> as a kid, I was really excited because I invited uh, mini pads with wings way before they ever came to market. And then when they came to market, I was like, oh, someone heard my idea. <laughs> Obviously, uh, multiple people in the world come up with ideas at the same time. You know, and it's kind of funny because, like, you even mentioned that with the um, with uh, the gentleman named Gray and with Bell with the telephone, you know, like they both came up with ideas at the same time. You know, it, it, it seems to be that there is this um, resurgence or a, I don't know what the correct word would be of all of a sudden – people are thinking about the same kind of thing at the same time. And uh, do you have a, an idea or a theory behind what motivates us to kind of multiple people at different ends of the earth can come up with an idea at the same time? That's, that's a tough question to answer because everybody is different, right. unique, has different circumstances. You know, a lot of inventors will uh, be lying down in bed and all of a sudden see something on TV and say, wow, that's, that's interesting, but maybe it's better this way, or a lot of inventors will be at work, and they are doing their job, and then something hits them and says, you know what, I can do the same job, but I can make it better and easier, and, and the company will benefit from it. And then a lot of inventors uh, just, you know, are sitting down, and a light bulb goes off in their mind, and they come up with that idea. So there's a lot of different ways that inventors today are coming up with their invention ideas, and it's hard to put a handle on what's the one most or the most frequently. It's anything and everything. But the, the interesting part is, I have to say, I would venture to guess that everybody has or had an invention idea at one time or another, either presently or in the past, and most of them didn't follow up with it. And then, as you pointed out a few moments ago, all of a sudden, you know, six months, a year down the road, they see that concept in the stores, on the shelves, on TV, and they say, wow, I had that idea. I should have done something about it. And that spurs on a lot of inventors to start with new ideas. So that's helping as well. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I I just love the idea of it because I've always come up with inventions and and uh, have met other people who've come up with things and and you're right, it, they just fall dead in the water that they don't do anything with it, and I I think a lot of that is this lack of confidence that you have the skill set or the ability to do something because it sounds extremely like so anybody who would have listened at the beginning of the show, you and Gina were fantastic. Like boom, you guys were right on top of it with a with a legal talk and the legal t you guys knew what you were talking about and you got it and you know with your guys's expertise and knowledge of about how the law works and how the application works you know it to someone else someone to like me um I, I, I'm very educated, and yet I still found, find that intimidating. And so I can't even imagine someone who comes up with an invention who doesn't have the, like, academic or the, you know, cultural experiences that I have, how much more they might find it intimidating. Right. 
Right. And and then again, those same people who do move forward, if they're smart enough, which many of them are today, they'll do a great deal more of research, find out how to get started. There's a lot of great information on the online, Google or any other search engine. Find out what it is you're looking for. Do your research, inventors. Make yourself um, uh, aware of everything that's out there. Don't jump into somebody or some company that's offering you to do everything right up front. Don't spend thousands of dollars. Work at it diligently. And, again, do that research. And then you'll be less intimidated because you're becoming knowledgeable. And that, that's what we do at Inventor Education Academy. We educate you so you are knowledgeable so you can make intelligent decisions. Well, and that's what I love about um, I love about you. I've had the you know pleasure to know you for um, I don't know maybe a year now, uh, maybe more than that. And the idea that you are all about just educating people and giving them information, so it's not pushy, it's not salesy. Um, you know, you're honest with people. If things don't really like, if they don't have enough in order, you're like, hey, go back to the drawing board or or do this or do that. And the other piece too that I'm thinking about um, that. I think we've briefly talked about you and I in the past is that when someone does invent something, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be the one to carry it through to a complete product. The fact that you created a provisional idea uh, in itself or have a provisional patent for an idea, you can sell that gift it, work with someone else, partner with someone else who has the ability, the funding, the dream, the know-how, the passion to complete that and carry it out. It doesn't necessarily have to be you. And that, I think that, that, is, that in that itself is, is exciting. It yeah. is. And that, that's why we are going to attend the licensing show, because we're looking at companies that are actively seeking new product ideas, whereas the inventor may not have the wherewithal, like you just mentioned, to do their own manufacturing or marketing, et cetera. And they don't have the funds. They don't have the time. So these companies would be actively looking at invention ideas, uh, uh, viewing what they believe is something that might be very productive for them, and then negotiate a licensing agreement or an outright purchase so those companies can take over and the inventor will still be able to be remunerated for their original idea. Yeah. I, I love that. Uh, it, it's just giving me uh, – so those of you who are listening, let, let me give you some examples of things that have come up in conversation within the last week for me that were things that, like, I would have never thought of as an invention. And even if I had heard of them, probably wouldn't have thought that that was a merit uh, – there was any merit to having that until I heard more information about it. For one, I have, I'm friends with a, a gentleman who owns a company that has a machine that they've created for printing processes. So they work with large printing companies, and they um, create a machine that puts on a UV coating on you know, banners and photos and book covers and, and large, you know, large, large, large capacity. So they're not looking at companies that only print like 5,000 or something or small quantities or small sizes, but like huge, big, multiple pieces of stuff. And so who would have ever thought that a, a, a small machine attached to another machine that would create one, fix one solution to something that we didn't even know was a problem. So that way the covers don't fade or the banners don't fade. 
Another example right. is my, hus- my husband owns a pinball and video game business. Well, recently he worked on a particular game, and although he's an expert in knowing about pinball and has worked on them for, you know, 30-plus years, um, the one was particularly difficult. And when we asked why, he said, because all of the wires are white, where most machines have, you know, red goes to red and green goes to green. This one has all white with a green stripe or a red stripe or a blue stripe. And when I asked him, why would they do that? And he said, well, the company realized that it's cheaper to buy wiring with a white coating and you buy it, you know, by the miles, you know, and then they bought a machine that goes through that wiring and paints a stripe on it. That's cheaper than buying the green wire, the blue wire and the red wire. Mm-hmm. So they save a yep. ton of money by doing that. So like in my world, I never, I'm like, what do you need a magic marker? <laughs> Just do the string. You know, it would have never dawned on me that there's a machine to fix the wire of the wire that you already bought, but it does, yep. it cuts down in the pricing. So that's right. It's, it's, yeah. So those of you who are listening an invention doesn't have to be that you've created something new in the world. It's how to make something more efficient, how to make something more productive how to make something so it's more profitable and has less expenditures. Um, it could be the way it's packaged, the way it's processed, the way it's held, the way it's used, the way it's cleaned, the way it's stored. All of those things are ideas uh, to get you motivated to share somebody's idea. And, and the most amazing people have come up with the most amazing inventions that you would never consider as anything as a, you wouldn't even Oh, so a friend of mine, um, oh my, uh, I think his name is Elijah White. I can't think of his last name right now. Um, I may be totally butchering his name. Um, he has the Billy Bob teeth, the jacked up plastic teeth you put in your mouth. Actually, I think his book is right here by me. Um, that, <laughs> that product uh, made millions of dollars, and it, it's a product with jacked up rubber teeth that you put in your mouth, and it was did so well and became so profitable that people who have jacked up teeth were desirous of having nice teeth. So now they have a product that you can put in fake nice teeth and, and, and wear that. Oh, I'm, I'm looking for his book. I'm at my office and I just had it in my hands like a day ago and now I don't see it. So those are ideas as well. Things that are gimmicks or, or gag gifts or funny stuff uh, could also yep. be a fantastic product. That's correct. And, and, you know, taking off on that for a moment, there is a website that's called Wacky Patents, W-H-A-C-K-Y Patents, and it'll show you all kinds of existing crazy patents that ideas that have been patented but are just too crazy to ever think of doing. So if you want to have some fun and and people want to, you know, get an idea of what kind of crazy ideas out there are out there, check out Wacky Patents. Uh, patents or wacky inventions and see what's out there. It's a lot of fun. It's entertaining. And who knows? You might even get a, an idea from that too for yourself. Yeah, it's a fantastic idea. And we've got about, uh, oh, about 12 more minutes in the show. So, Gina, did you want to add any more? Because, I mean, obviously your knowledge and expertise really adds to this conversation as well. And I'm super excited to hear what else you might want to share. So many I of don't our think listeners. Gina is with us. No, I'm still here. Can you hear me? 
Yeah, we can hear you. Okay, just making sure. I am. So many of our listeners, Shock, are online business owners. And in today's online world, many of them are creating what are called SaaS platforms, short for software as a service platforms. Is there a possibility of protecting their SaaS platforms using a provisional patent? Okay. Yes. Was, was, was that a question or did I miss something? It is. No, it's a question. Uh, so okay. if someone creates a piece of software that's called a SaaS platform, meaning it's housed in the cloud, not downloaded onto a computer, and people typically would pay a membership fee to have access to this software, can they right. protect that right. software with a provisional patent or a utility patent down the road? Well, the answer, the short answer is yes. The longer answer is today the patent office, along with other government agencies, have been scrutinizing computer technology to become patented, whether it's AI or whether it's an app or whether it's something that you were just mentioning. And it's, it's been in the forefront because of issues that uh, many of those applications have been denied and then they were subject to review again because there was no reason for denial. So there's a lot of these legalities that are taking place today that are both pro and con to have something like that patented. As far as uh, provisional patent is concerned, it's definitely worthwhile to obtain the provisional and then go through the motions of figuring out is this worthwhile to continue for a utility patent down the road. So it can be done, but it can be cumbersome. And the reason I even asked the question is that had a lot to do with the article I wrote for the Notre Dame Law Review back in 1990. And that's why it's been cited by the U.S. Supreme Court so much, especially in recent years, because this is an issue that's in the forefront often these days and guys and gals if you're creating SaaS platforms really talk to somebody like jock to see if there is a an opportunity to get some protection for it because boy the difference between having it protected and not having protection is gigantic down the road especially if you ever want to have an exit strategy of selling your business that's right. That's right. And of equal importance is finding out what you do have. Is it even worthwhile pursuing? Is it worth your time and effort and money? Maybe it's not. But with proper yep. research and proper investigation, we'll be able to help you determine that as well. Well, I want to encourage everyone to go take the assessments that you have on your website. And let's just give them a link one more time to make sure that they've got it. Because that okay. inventor assessment sounds fantastic, and the second step sounds fantastic, extremely helpful stuff. So where would they right. find it? Well, to take the evaluation, again, the inventor goes to inventoreducation.net, inventoreducation.net. We also have another website, which is inventoreducationacademy.com, where we explain those three steps that we discussed here on the show today 
and they can actually click on to take the evaluation from the .com site as well. So that's InventorEducationAcademy.com for all the steps and or InventorEducation.net for the evaluation assessment. And really, anyone that is creating products of any type today should be looking at this. It's certainly an opportunity to get more leverage in your business, isn't it? Yes, it is, without a doubt. The more leverage you have, the more knowledge and education you have, the, the more opportunity you have to make the right decisions and save time and effort money that puts you ahead of the game, ahead of everybody else. So you need that. You want to be able to move in the right direction. You want to know, do you have something worthwhile or not? You want to know, should you just stop because you don't have something? And, you know, if you don't know that, you can spend too much time and effort and money wasted and, and you go nowhere. But if you do have that, now you're putting yourself with the proper leverage, as you said, and the proper direction to make everything better. And if and the people need more information than they're getting from our website, they're free to call us. And if you like, I can give our toll-free number. That would be great. Sure. Anybody can be feel free to give us a call toll-free at 844 844- Well, this has been very enlightening, and I hope our listeners get in touch with you soon because I know so many of our listeners that could really use your help. Well, I look forward to helping them if they they want. We've got about six minutes left before we've got to end this. Go ahead, Andrea, and then I'll ask one last question. Sure. Well, I, I wanted to say, by the way, I thought it was uh, the gentleman who has the Billy Bob teeth, his name is Jonah White, uh, so I wanted to give him the, the prop, proper name. I mean, he just is, what a, talk about a million-dollar business with a product. And then I'm sitting here thinking of inventions uh, just for radio and for how we do business just in talking with uh, you, Jacques, uh, here on uh, Blog Talk Radio. Oh, (laughs) Gina, please go ahead with your question. So I think I heard Andrea at the beginning of the show mention that you also help inventors with licensing as well. What's that all about, Jacques? Licensing means uh, inventor has an idea. They don't have the wherewithal to manufacture it or market on their own. They don't have the money. They don't have the manufacturing facility. They just don't have the time. So they go out and they find the companies that are going to be potentially interested in taking on the invention. That's why we're attending the licensing show. So a company that might uh, like to take on a product, we will step in to negotiate an agreement with them. That agreement can be royalties. It could be an outright purchase of the idea. It could be a combination of the two, upfront payments. It gives the inventor the opportunity to get their invention idea out there with an agreement with another company that takes on the risk and the burden because they believe in the invention. They'll put it out there at their cost and time and effort and in return pay a fee or a royalty, which averages between 3 and 8% of sales. That's what they'll pay to the inventor, and that's negotiable. And that's basically how royalties work. 
Wow. And again, another example of a way to get that much more leverage for an inventor, isn't it? Yes, without Definitely. a doubt. Without a and doubt. and uh, Jacques has another thing, too. He's working on a product to educate people more about trademark as well. Do you want to address that really quick for us, Jacques? Sure. Uh, trademarks are uniquely different than patents. A trademark is something like think of uh, Nike or think of any Coca-Cola or think of any other company brand name by the name and or the design of how Coca-Cola is printed out. You're going to trademark the name to protect it so nobody else can come along and use it. And that's a separate application with the Patent and Trademark Office. But here's something real quick that's very interesting. When somebody comes up with a unique name or unique uh, logo, as an example, and they uh, don't want to yet apply for a full trademark, what they do is on anything that's documented, written format, after their name, put the little letters TM, trademark, TM. What that is, it's telling the world, hey, that's my name. Don't touch it. Then, once they go to the Patent and Trademark Office to uh, file for their trademark, and if it's approved, the TM turns into an R with a circle around it, and the R represents registered. And that's what inventors should do now with their logos, with their names, with their designs. Put that TM behind it. At least you're telling the world that's your name. That's your brand. Very, very good advice. And why would they want to do that right up front before they've really started to get their business going? Well, a lot of people want to showcase their business name, their design of their logo uh, to help induce or produce their business whether it be with a product idea or whether it be a service or whatever it is, you're still somewhat protected with the TM, although it's not something that will stand up in court as a TM like an R would, but at least you're telling the world it's almost like a, um, a provisional, but not quite the same. So I, I would do that all the time and tell that to my clients, and I do tell them all the time, put that TM behind your name or your Logo. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Jacques. I know I got a lot out of the show, and hopefully our audience has as well. And we'll be back same time, yep. same place next week. I got to run, guys. Bye. Thanks for having me. So long. Tune in next week for another episode of Leverage Masters. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook on our Leverage Blackbook page to keep up with the latest.